Hi, welcome to History Respawned. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. On today's episode, we're discussing Atari 50, developed by Digital Eclipse. At first blush, Atari 50 appears to be just another in a long line of forgettable Atari game compilations. But in actuality, this title is packed with a host of historical material. Atari 50 includes newly recorded video interviews with designers, a collection of archival design documents, high-res original artwork, and original publicity material, including television commercials from the 1980s. In many ways, Atari 50 is more mobile museum exhibit than game compilation. To help me understand the importance of Atari in game history and to discuss game archives more generally, I've invited onto the show Dr. John Paul Dyson. John Paul is the director of the International Center for the History of Electronic Games and the vice president for exhibits at the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. JP, welcome to History Respond. Glad to be on. Uh, so JP, you've got the game screen uh, here in front of you. I'm switching over to using my Xbox controller. It's a little bit easier to manipulate the menus uh, while recording <laughs> using this controller. Uh, and so this is the home screen. Uh, and as you can see here, it's got the history of Atari over on the right divided basically by decades. Uh, so starts with the arcade history um, and then it goes through to the first Atari consoles uh, and then into the 1980s. And then finally with Atari PCs during the mid to late 80s. Uh, and then lastly, with the Lynx and the Jaguar uh, in the 1990s. Uh, so it's kind of got a historical look to it. And at any time while you're playing, you can hit the X button and go into the game library. Uh, and this can be sorted by platform, by title, by recently played. Uh, but then I think as historians, we might appreciate the sort by year. So, you know, when you're talking about Atari, especially in the last 20 years, most of my experience with Atari uh, has been in this format where it's a game compilation that they throw out on every single platform that comes out and it includes things like Star Raiders and Breakout and Yar's Revenge and then that's the end of it. Uh, but in this game, and I'll show you here, you've not just got that game compilation but you've also got these historical timelines which include archival materials. Uh, including original videos. Uh, and uh, some of these videos include documentary recordings as well as interviews with the developers. So you see you've got uh, Space Race, you've got all of these kind of promotional materials here, and I'll try to find one of these uh, videos. Atari's Pinball Problem, and I'll show you this. And this is with Eugene Darvis. So I've got the game volume turned down here so we can hear JP's volume, but uh, this is what these original documentaries look like, and they include interviews with Eugene Jarvis, the rest of the team at Atari during the 70s and 80s, and they're really fantastic, uh, and they're kind of inlaid with uh, versions of the games as well. 
yeah, you see the colors here of a lot of the stuff really come to life in, in these uh, flyers and, and other materials. And the pinball stuff is, is is great here. And we don't think of Atari necessarily as a pinball manufacturer. Mm -hmm. One of the favorite, or most popular Atari pinball games we have here is uh, actually their, their Hercules game, which is the world's largest pinball game ever made. Yeah. And that one is... Um, the you actually use a, a cube a pool cue ball for the uh for the actual ball in there it's not a very fun game but it's sort of <laughs> eye-catching game because you have to stretch your arms out to play it i think they've got a picture of it in here i'm gonna come through and take a look and see if i can find anything uh, but as you can see they also include you know what uh, uh, other materials what you might call paratextual materials with uh Kind of old advertisements t-shirts and everything um and i'm pretty sure they've got the hercules cabinet in here it might have been further back we'll see uh but that one i remember seeing for the first time when i visited the strong back in 2019 and i was absolutely shocked <laughs> that something like that uh was ever made um, actually, I don't see it here. I wonder if it's further back. It might be one of these sub-menus, unfortunately. But, uh, but yeah, so this is, this is basically what this game is about. And see, you've got these sections here uh, where you can play versions of the game. So this is the uh, arcade version of Breakout, which I'll just jump into here. And then you can hit LB to insert a coin. And so it's got the look on the sides of an actual old uh arcade game let's see if i can actually figure out how to control this i jump in here okay so a is serve here we go and you know the story about breakout right with the no creation. tell me no go ahead so i'll probably get some of the details wrong here and some of it it's one of these that um become legend a little bit but breakout was done by steve jobs um while he was working at, at atari and um and supposedly he you know, he was um sort of Nolan Bushnell says that he hired him mostly because he, he knew that Steve Wozniak would actually do the real work and he had so he signed the jobs to actually do and only jobs to work at the night shift because he was in one of his non-bathing phases. <laughs> um and so they sort of put him on the night shift to to sort of save the other workers. And uh, Wozniak did a lot of the work, at, work of it. But it was essentially, Breakout is essentially Pong taken on its um, uh, on its side. Mm -hmm. There also is some stories that that um, Jobs sort of screwed Wozniak out of some, some of the money for mm. it. Uh, and so it, it, it had some of that sort of two sides of Steve Jobs piece to it yeah which is both the brilliant design piece and also the slightly <laughs> shady businessman yeah. uh side of him as well but it, it's still a fun game actually breakout yeah. and uh it's it's uh there's a way that you could take this basic idea of hitting a ball with a paddle and extend the possibilities with it uh well so let me get to my questions here i've just kind of been jumping through here to give you a sense of this game but you know when it comes to Atari, like I said, you know, most of my experience with it 
uh, as a, a pretty regular gamer has been just with these compilations. And I think with younger players, um, you know, their experience would be even less than that. And, you know, for a lot of younger players, even 10 years ago seems like ancient game history. So I'm wondering, you know, if you could present us with a case as to why Atari matters, why Atari, why these old games are worth remembering. Well, Atari is the company that really establishes the video game industry in many ways. So you run into really complicated waters when you try to determine what is the first video game and, and where do video games come from? Who's the f credited with inventing video games? But it's pretty clear that Atari really launches the video game industry. And so, uh, sort of especially Nolan Bushnell, it's not just Nolan Bushnell, but um, I think becomes the sort of leading player in this and really thinking about video games as a mass industry as opposed to either something that are on these these mainframe computers that are stuck in the um, computer labs of businesses or universities and played in sort of spare illicit hours or are they um, coming out of the, the, the pinball or general industry uh, that's associated with midways and carnivals and, and sort of the places where you drop a nickel or a quarter in. Mm -hmm. So Nolan Bushnell and Atari, they really bring to life this whole industry. And it really starts with Pong is really the key game for this. So computer space is their their first game actually done with nutting and associates so even before this in atari but it's really pong that take that takes them to a new level because it's such an appealing game and what they had what they have once they have a hit game they can start a company that's beginning to churn out products and first in the coin op space and then with home pong and then with the atari vcs the 2600 in the home console space so they bring high-level manufacturing, high-level advertising, high-level consumer awareness to the video game industry and really then establish a format for other companies to come in and do essentially the same thing. Yeah, you can see some of this uh, past record here. I'll jump ahead to the first Atari console here. Um, and this gets us into the console era with the 2600, uh, yeah. 1977. Uh, and then the iconic joystick and the paddle. Um, I remember that my kind of only introduction to ever playing an Atari machine was with a 2600 with the joystick, the paddle, and it was the only time I played it was when my uh, my in-laws uh, were actually cleaning out their garage <laughs> in the early 2000s. And I was like, oh, what's this? And I'd actually <laughs> never seen an Atari before. I was aware oh, of the games, you know, from past compilations. Like I said, you know, PC ports of uh, games like Missile Command and uh, Breakout. Uh, but I'd never actually seen the console uh, before. And, yeah, so it's... You know, like you said, they're foundational to the history of gaming, particularly console gaming. But I just wonder how how many players, uh, especially younger than I am, uh, have experience with it. Well, there's also a generational difference in when you experience it. So there's a difference between playing an Atari game now, whether that's an original system from your in-laws or whether that's on a, a sort of an emulated version on a modern system. 
versus playing it when it first came out. And, and, and I think what you can't capture is that, that sense of wonder and magic that it brought. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm old enough to have played it on the original. Um, <laughs> I didn't want to out you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and um, I never had one. My best friend had one. And, and a joke I make is that the reason the strong has the world's largest video game collection is because my mother wouldn't buy me an Atari. <laughs> um, and um, so I remember going over to his house and the experience of magic, especially in a sleepover or something like that, where you're in a darkened room and the, the screen is, is glowing and i think you see that in the cover art i know you're, you're scrolling through here and showing something up with the cover art where the cover art looked nothing like the game itself so you have these these images so right now on the screen you have 3d tic-tac-toe which was created by carol shaw and there are these astronauts floating in space and when you actually look at the game itself it, it's it's four so like slightly isometric uh tic-tac-toe boards of their four by four stacked on top of each other and it has none of that (laughs) um sort of sort of sci-fi sort of uh uh, imaginative artwork in there and yet there was something about that though those games in your imagination as you were doing those games you had this sense of you're taking part in something futuristic and uh, magical and magnificent and so the artwork created this mental model in your mind of what you'll be playing that in some ways was totally different from from what you actually were playing in terms of a visual look but in terms of your feelings i think it did capture something of that when you're in a game like adventure for instance you're exploring through these castles i mean there are these very primitive keys and dragons and that sort of thing but in your mind you are partaking of this broader deeper adventure and so there's that magic for that first generation that experiences it that is not experienced uh, by someone who's playing it today. So we approach it today from a different point of view, maybe from appreciation of it as this fount of gaming styles or genres, or maybe we appreciate it as beauty within an 8-bit aesthetic, but we don't necessarily appreciate it with the same sense of wonder and awe that would have been generated by the machine at the time. So. Mm-hmm. And that's true of, of, of any historical um, sort of phenomenon, medium, I think, is that we experience it differently now than we did then. That's inevitable. It's not bad. It's just different. Yeah. And, you know, I think from that perspective, particularly from the 70s and the 80s, there would have been a whole host of different types of play that you would have had be doing most of the work in your mind anyways. You know, you think about... Dungeons and Dragons in particular or board games, you know, it's like, okay, well, the visual representations of this in reality aren't so impressive, but in your mind, that's where the real game is. And I feel like a lot of these early games kind of touch upon that. Like it gives you the cover image to get your imagination going and then you kind of fill in the rest of the details uh, as you play. Um, and then, you know, kind of famous games like Missile Command with this just iconic artwork, which I feel a lot of of modern game developers attempt to ape this style with the way that they present their games uh, particularly in promotional materials um so it is it is quite amazing quite impressive yeah and, and i think you see different styles somewhat whether it's for a cartridge that you're you're seeing in a in a store to bring home and play versus say on uh 
arcade cabinet, for instance. There, the 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 artwork will have a different purpose, and then there's also a different experience because with a ca arcade cabinet, you are immersed in it. You're leaning forward with these with these side walls here that are sort of limiting your your field of vision to some extent, and it's a little bit different in a home version where it's more of a of a sequential experience. You're going from the box to then playing on the screen with, with the distractions around you, whereas in an arcade cabinet, which Atari obviously started off doing, it's luring you in with that side art and the screen, what's going on in the screen, the track screen. And then once you're there, you're, you're immersed in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so unlike a lot of other game compilations, this uh, Atari 50 game, uh, it includes these documentaries, it includes archival footage, it includes design documents. Um, and so I'm just wondering, you know, as somebody involved at the Strong, in leadership at the Strong Library, what do you make of this style of presentation and commemoration that we see here in Atari 50? It's great. I mean, first of all, some of the materials are from the Strong, from our, <laughs> from our archives and library. So it's always nice to see stuff that we've collected and preserved being featured and shared with people in this way. It's another great way to do it, you know, in addition to say like a museum exhibit, for instance, or a publication. And I think it's something that, that adds depth to the experience. You, you think about a lot of this stuff started with movies, for instance, where with, with DVDs, where you have director cuts or you have background documentation for people who really appreciate movies as an art form. And so now we're at the point with video games where we could do the same, where you're doing a number of things. One is you're opening the door on how the creation process. You know, these things are not just emerging fully blown from the mind of the creator or creators like, you know, Athena coming out of the head of Zeus. That there's a process here that might involve some of the messy work of focus groups or uh, internal planning documents. And so I think people, Certain segment of the population like seeing that and knowing that uh, that's there. And then there's a certain often aesthetic quality to these things themselves. They're different than the game. So again, something like a flyer, as we've just been talking about, that's going to tell you something about the way the game was expected to fire your imagination or what was going to appeal to people. And in some sense, they're a time capsule going back to an era, the 70s or the 80s that is has different aesthetic choices different expectations about what technology can do different values sometimes even um and so i think that gives you a richer appreciation of of the games itself and sets it within a broader historical context and it's a signal of how much people just love video games and how important they've become to us as a cultural medium mm -hmm. um that you're at the point now where you can go back and appreciate these and you see a lot of this in video game, modern video games are being made, which whether it's a sort of uh, indie games that have a retro style or ones that are picking up on game mechanics that are older and say, hey, you know, what are the possibilities here to create something um, that is um, something that's sort of old yet new? Mm -hmm. And you have the screen right now in the official Atari handshake. <laughs> and this is totally revealed, which is totally new to me. I've never seen this. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So let me see if I can call up the yeah November December eighty two issue of Atari Age magazine. Debuted this official handshake. 
<laughs> identifying Atari players. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, well, on this topic, you know, like this game includes so much of this kind of historical ephemera around games, the design documents, the promotional materials. And, you know, we're kind of constantly being told, uh, you know, if you're aware of the games press, you follow games coverage, we're constantly being told that the digital past, particularly digital games, are being lost or they're under threat. And I'm wondering, you know, could you give us a sense of how the strong, how the archives of play, how they approach not just the issue of game preservation, but then also how it approaches the issue of preserving the ephemera around games, like the design documents, promotional materials? We began our video game preservation efforts in 2006, actually, and we're a museum that's devoted history of play more, more broadly. And so we are the world's largest collection of playthings, of toys and dolls and games and jigsaw puzzles. Um, and that includes video games. And because as we were looking at how play was changing, we realized, hey, video games are having this outsized effect on the way people play, the way they learn, the way they relate to one another. And so we said we need to begin collecting them. And one of the things we did early on, I know I sat down and wrote a document in back in 06 that said, what does it mean to collect the history of video games? And articulate this idea of the, uh, the these four concentric circles. So the games themselves, the experience of the producers who made the game, the history of that, the experience of the players, and then all this within a wider circle of play itself. And over the years, I've shifted from the idea of preserving games to preserving the history of video games. And so when you when you think about not so much just about the game itself, but about the history of the medium, that changes what you want to preserve, what you want to focus on collecting. So again, in some cases, it may be those materials from the business records of the company that made the game. It could be the designer notes. It could be the marketing plans. It could be the they're, they're going out for initial public offering, and this is their perspectives for how they're going to do this. All those are, are rich things. It could be the correspondence with players and players saying, hey, I love this part of the game. And so I think we quickly shifted from the game itself as being the, the, the locus of, act, of the collecting activity to these broader um, issues, which meant building relationships with people in the industry or with, with players and and gathering those his, those histories there. But then you also have this whole question of what does it mean, even if you collect a game, what does it mean to collect and preserve a video game? And that's one thing that we discovered quick, very quickly. You know, in, in retrospect, it's something we thought, should have thought about much earlier before we even started. What does it mean to preserve a video game? But we didn't. We just sort of jumped in as, as most people do <laughs> in these things without doing it. And then you realize that every generation of video games has its own challenges. An arcade game from the 1970s has a very different challenge than a smartphone game from today in terms of what it means to preserve it. Uh, and every generation in between has these sort of challenges. So there's never one magic bullet to preserving games themselves. And some games you're just not going to be able to preserve. And so at that point you think, okay, is it preserving the ephemera, these sort of paratextual elements, as, as you said, around it? Is it preserving video of the gameplay, for instance? Is it preserving materials that document how it was created or how it was received. Is material for people talking about the game in media of various formats, which again, used to be easier. You collected the magazine. 
now it's like, okay, there's, it's a website that, that is up there. Do we collect every website that talks about every game? This, you're dealing now with a, with a problem of abundance. What do you do when there's so much material being generated and there's so many games being produced? So I've grown very comfortable with loss um, over time. You sort of have to be. And I also think that preserving the history of video games is more like preserving the history of a sport, for instance, in some ways, mm. or um, it's like, like baseball, for instance, is an analogy I use sometimes. What does it mean to preserve the history of baseball? Well, if you're at a major league game, there's something going on there that is ineffable that you're never going to be able to preserve, that the smell of the popcorn, the, the, the excitement of the crowd. <laughs> Even if you got a video of that game itself, it's not. It's only going to be an imperfect representation of what, it, what that was, that snap shot in time and you could have a scorecard where you know everything you've got a video that's from one angle you could have oral histories uh you could have people's memories you could collect the souvenirs the program and the you know those, those little pennants that you they used to make and you're, and you're always imperfectly representing the past and that's the nature of it it's like trying to say what does it mean to preserve the history of Elizabethan theater. Well, we have Shakespeare's plays, but is that getting at what it was like to be at the Globe? Right. Is that the lived the experience? Of, yeah. Exactly. The press of the crowd and the, you know, the, 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 the rowdiness of the people, if they're bored with the play or whatever else, or Shakespeare, you know, desperately scribbling out sort of lines, say, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> that line didn't fall, didn't, didn't work so well. Maybe I'll adjust it. I don't know if he did that. I assume he probably did. It's like something totally um bond but it so it's it's this lived experience and so as a medium you're not gonna be able to preserve everything and that's where some of these things are really useful again you're holding up uh looks like an advertisement right now for for some sort of atari product atari 400 atari 800 yeah yeah um you know when atari was going to revolutionize the computer market as they Mm -hmm. did the home console market which they never quite did um so there's something in that that's meaningful. So you want to collect broadly from the games themselves to maybe capture the gameplay to all these varieties of documentation, whether that's from the producer side, the player side, the media side, um, or just stuff that's out there in the, uh, the zeitgeist of the culture in general. Yeah. What does it mean for critics? You want to collect around critics of video games. Why were video games seen as threatening or disruptive? What is that saying about the times, people's opinions upon that? Yeah. And especially, I, I always think about this with history in general, but then especially with games, you know, the the user experience is so central to gaming you know today but then you've got to think about it historically as well and you know how do players themselves interact with the games what's the experience of play Uh, but then how do they make modifications uh, to the games and this is something that could come up with reference to pc games in particular you know atari 400 atari 800 you know this kind of era launched the careers of a lot of very famous developers in the you know late 80s and the 90s uh, you know, people uh, like uh, Tim Schafer, for instance, and, um, you know, this kind of era, you know, that kind of not just playing the games, but then also using the consoles to create as well or to make modifications. Uh, that's a that's a big part of the story and something it seems like it'd be very easy to lose 
uh, you know, because that's not the type of stuff that you would maybe keep a record of or, you know, other than the lived experience uh, or the personal biographies of these uh, these developers, these players. Right. That's where you see, I think, one big difference in the console and the home computer, where the console largely throughout its history has been a closed end experience. You are playing this game. And I think that's why you see certain eras, for instance, like the 90s, when there seemed to be such a great gulf between what was available on consoles versus what you as an individual person could, unless you were some genius, could really do. So again, having lived through this, you know, in the, in the 80s, especially, I know there wasn't that much of a difference really between what you could buy commercially and what you, if you were a semi-decent programmer, could, could write yourself. And so it really opened up the possibilities when you had PCs coming on, on the market more broadly, or what they call microcomputers often at the time, um, to really say, hey, I can program this and I can do this in basic um, if I'm, you know, you know, halfway decent, but if I'm really good, I can start doing it in assembly or something else mm -hmm. and really create something high level. And so you see people like John Romero, for instance, yeah. who create, he's one of the co-creators of Doom. He starts writing games on his, his computer. In fact, we have his original Apple II here at the museum. Um, and he starts sending them into magazines who will publish them in these long lists of, of program uh, code that they would publish and you laboriously type it in yourself. Uh, sometimes you didn't even have memory to store it, so you'd have to retype it in every time. Uh, and so it really brings to you this ability to create things. And this is true in the 80s. Actually, one of the exciting things about now is I think that in some ways there's a re return to this earlier moment when anyone could create a game because we have so many sort of game engines and, and game programs that you can create something so that you can go on and create a functional playable game that's yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. In a way that it was much harder to do in the 1990s, I think, in any way that seemed fun. But now yeah. it's like, you know, use Unity and create something I, or whatever. Exactly. I do it every year in my history and games class at Collin College where I have students get on Twine. And sure, they're just text adventures, but that's something that I wouldn't have the ability to do back growing up in the 90s. And now it's just at their fingertips with pretty easy user interface tools. Right. And I think, you know, one thing that... I think that's been important then about this as we live this is now you have this rich history of different styles of computer games and or video games and so you get people who are creating games now mining this this history for for new ideas and it's very rarely it's a return exactly to what was there before but using that as inspiration the other thing i think is important to talk about in terms of player experience is that we use the term player sometimes as this unitary term but in reality a player is very different depending on where they are in their life cycle in this moment of time so i often think you know sometime around age 13 is your peak imaginative investment in playing video games and so i think a lot of times for instance with the whole indie game or the retro game movement you see people where I feel like are, are creating games that harken back to that emotional feeling they had when they were 13. And it's different when you're a six-year-old versus when you're a 13-year-old versus maybe when you're, um, you know, a 29-year-old or now I'm in my early 50s. I've seen this. I've been playing video games my whole life. But, you know, when I was 
raising, you know, raising four kids when they were younger. It was not, there was not a lot of time except for stolen late night hours with Age of Empires after everyone was in bed <laughs> when I sacrificed some sleep for that. And so even today, I find myself gravitating much more towards quick games on my phone or even a game like chess, which is uh, playing it online. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm having a very different experience than I see, say, my youngest son, who's 17 now, who still can immerse himself in that game. And, and uh, every once in a while, I'll capture it, like when Red Dead Redemption 2 um, came out. For me, personally, I was diving back in there. So when these games came out, you know, people were, were 12, 13 playing these games from Atari. They were all consuming. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there weren't a lot of 50-year-olds who were necessarily playing this game. But now we've had video games around for, you know, half a century. And so now <laughs> you get old codgers like me who are still uh, who are still playing them. And But my experience is inevitably different than that of a teenager who right. has more time, who has maybe more emotional openness, who hasn't seen all these things um new you know i again yeah. it's i can get crotchety well that's just the same <laughs> game as you know such and such you know nah. <laughs> yeah. don't I, don't don't put yourself down you're always right right and that's my feeling as somebody who's just turned 40 i'm like oh these kids these days they don't know what a good game is uh yeah. well speaking of uh uh middle-aged gamers we've got uh, alan alda here uh promoting the atari xl home computers i uh, just thought this is a very funny uh, advertisement. <laughs> yeah, it was, from it, the mid '80s. Yeah. yeah, so Alan Alda, who this was, he's at its peak of popularity. Mash is the biggest show on television right now. Yeah, and I'm sure that I, I, I don't know if Alan Alda had ever used a computer in his life before. He, uh, <laughs> well, so it, it says computer he computer enthusiast uh, written yeah. here. Yeah, so there we go. Um, uh, always believe advertising. <laughs> so, so maybe, um, yes, exactly. Um, but maybe he was. Maybe I'm selling Alan Alda shorts. So yeah. he's. Well, but he wasn't mixing moonshine and mash. He was no, that's a, that's right. All right. So JP, I've got a last question here, and it's focused on the Strong, uh, this kind of incredible archive and museum in Rochester, New York, a lovely place to visit in the summertime, uh, in particular. Uh, and when I was at the Strong before the pandemic back in 2019, the facility was in the midst of a lot of construction. And I'm wondering, could you tell us what's new at the Strong in 2023? And you know, could you kind of pitch this this museum, this archive, to the educators and the scholars who listen to History Respond? Yeah. So I think there's really two audiences there. Um, though in some some people those are they're blended audiences. Hopefully we can appeal to both. So in terms of the general audience, so the museum itself is vast. It's really hard to convey how large the museum is. Uh, right now I think it's about three hundred seventy-five thousand square feet, um, and there's also some outdoor space as well. And as I mentioned earlier, we have the world's largest collection of playthings. So it's not just video games. We're about play in all its various forms. And it's a very interactive museum. But we also feature a lot of um, artifacts, rare, unique, important artifacts, and also a lot of interpretations, telling the history of things. So it's, it's, it's a fun museum, if you, especially if you're coming with groups of people. But it's also one you could come by yourself and just explore and, and, and learn a lot, I think, and have a lot of fun. We just opened a 95,000 square foot expansion uh, to the museum. And that a lot of that is focused on the history of video games. So we have a giant area called 
ESL Digital Worlds. And that was um, funded in part by the National Endowment for the Humanities. So it received the Chairman Special Award, which is given to only one museum per year in the whole country. I think this is the first in three years. So hopefully gives them some signal of the intellectual content that's there. And also acknowledgement of how important video games are to culture. But it also is just a fun place. So in there, we have the world's largest Donkey Kong uh, that we worked with, with Nintendo to make sure that that was accurate. It's over 20 feet tall. And we also have our, our high score exhibit has a home of a spectacular new home for the World Video Game Hall of Fame. It's also a center for our Women in Games initiative. And that features a lot of those rare iconic objects, the drafts from designers people like um, Will Wright, who did uh, The Sims, or Carol Shaw, who did games like River Raid, and that um, the tic-tac-toe game we were looking at before, 3D tic-tac-toe. And then uh, just fun interactives, big section on the history of indie games there, a lot of fun indie games to play. And just really a visually spectacular place for anyone who loves video games. We thought about what does it mean if you're a baseball fan, you want to go to Cooperstown, if you're a football fan, you go to Canton. Uh, if you're a rock and roll fan, you go to Cleveland. And here, if you love video games, this is a place that really honors video games like no other place in the world. And then complementing that exhibit is another exhibit called Level Up, where we try to think seriously about what separates video games from other media and boil down the idea of actions, that, that interactivity is a key thing. And so we have this whole periodic table of video game verbs in which the... Exhibit is divided in areas like choose, move, create, compete, solve, feel, learn, collect. And we use that as a basis to create a whole series of interactives based on that. You get a, a RFID email wristband when you go in, you create an avatar, and you then collect achievements in all these different categories, 89 total achievements, all through different interactives. So it's like walking into a video game itself. You nice. become the player in a video game itself. And I think it's really a unique way of looking at video games, never really been done before from a museum perspective. And it's just a lot of fun, very, very interactive. And you're doing things like rather than having artifacts in regular museum cases, you have them in vending machines. You're going through and, and filling your inventory, your virtual inventory as you go through with your avatar and everything else. So, so it's a lot of fun. So these are all in this new space. Um, there is a changing gallery, the Suzanne Tony Goodman Gallery. I referenced Age of Empires before. We spent too much time playing. There's a deep history of Age of Empires there. And that um, draws on a lot of our actually collections that we have, which I think segues into that second audience. Researchers uh, coming from around the world who might be interested in history of video games one of the things we do as we create exhibits is we mine our archives for these things. So for instance, the game designer, Bruce Shelley, who was a key player on not only Civilization, working with Sid Meier, but also Age of Empires and a lot of other games, had donated his personal papers. And so we uncovered in those papers, which are physical papers, but also digital documents, the original build for Age of Empires, like discovering the rough draft of a novel of, uh, you know, uh, Huck Finn or... Uh, age of innocence or something like that and so we talk about this active digital preservation there and showcase it but researchers who come here have access to these collections and that may be in our library and archives where they're looking through physical digital materials or it may be accessing 
some of the more than 60,000 games and um, other artifacts that you can look at related to history of video games and actually play them in the original system. So we have a whole new digital preservation lab, which may be new since you came here before, mm -hmm. where we have over 20 systems set up, for instance, right now. So you just flip a switch, wow. and you're playing in the original system. Wow. And then you're not only seeing it on a modern flat screen, you're also seeing it on original CRT at the same time. Uh -huh. And meanwhile, it's running through a computer so you can get video capture. Oh, wow. Because there is that difference between playing an emulated experience versus playing it in the original. And so we want to make accessible to scholars who are doing research to experience this. Because I would make a pitch there is a difference between playing a game on the original versus just playing it in an emulated version. I think it's a real and significant difference. Of course, difference. yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sort of sort of being down on, on emulation is really important and it's a great way to get a sense of the game but if you're really digging into what a game is about from a scholarly perspective i think you do need to experience it in the original yeah sometimes that, that's harder to do and or if you're writing history of, of a system there's gonna be nowhere else probably that you're gonna be able to get access to so many so many games and play that uh, in the original yeah that sounds fantastic, and particularly the Age of Empires exhibit, I'm really interested in. I remember I went back in 2019 and kind of interested in researching historical games, so Age of Empires obviously on my radar, and I remember being taken into a back room and shown uh, Bruce Shelley's collection, which consisted of a huge stack of floppy disk drives that hadn't been converted over, and so I was able to spend about, like, I don't know, it was maybe 30 minutes just kind of looking through these old drives and, uh, you know, seeing some of those design documents, seeing some of the plans for Age of Empires 2 and 3 in particular, um, and so that was really exciting, and to think that, you know, more people have the ability to to not just see those kind of documents, but then also to, um, you know, as you said, with scholars being able to actually play some of those old games, which increasingly is very difficult, uh, you know, especially without emulation. And, you know, not every game gets emulated. You know, you know the hobbyists aren't interested in everything, and yet scholars might be interested in it for one reason or another. So that's really exciting. I'm really excited to hear about that. I'm really excited to hear about the NEH grant. I think that's fantastic. Y'all deserve it. Uh, it's an amazing place and a uh, good place for kids, I think. And I can think of myself as being a young history nerd, uh, you know, a teenager and going to museums and wishing that I could touch the exhibits. And that's kind of the purpose of the strong, right? The Museum of Play with video games, video game hall of fame. It's like, yes, this is interactive um in some ways uh you know the atari 50 uh game here kind of gets to that idea it's like a museum exhibit but one that you are encouraged to play with encouraged to touch uh in in, in kind of a digital format so yeah so great congratulations on on everything yeah. all the new exhibits and the grants well well deserved i think um, yeah, no, it's fun. And it's fun to, again, reimagine what does it mean to put a video game in a museum, which, again, is a different experience than you're going to be doing at home. I remember you know, one time many years ago trying to put the, the early game Zork out in the museum for guests to play. I realized it was not a good experience because you didn't have, you know, 20 hours to figure out how to do a text-based adventure uh, and do that. Or the time we put out an original Atari 2600 joystick, and I think it broke within a matter of <laughs> Um, because they weren't meant to be sort of used by thousands of people every day. So <laughs> you do need to think about these differently, differently. but then it's a new experience when you come 
And I love seeing the sort of intergenerational conversations that happen around this. I sort of joke, our museum is the one place where um, parents have a, have a decent chance of beating their kid at a video game <laughs> um, because maybe it's an old arcade game or an older system that they played. Um, I, I see lots of parents or grandparents, again, like sort of schooling their, their offspring on, on some old arcade game or saying, no, 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 you're playing Super Mario Brothers, all wrong here. This is how you do it, <laughs> taking over and playing it. So it's a great chance for people to have a lot of fun together and relive some really positive, happy memories. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, that does it for today's episode. JP, thank you very much for joining me on this episode of History Respond. Oh, my pleasure, Bob. Thank you so much. And dear listener, thank you for joining us. If you're interested in more from History Respawn, please visit our website, historyrespawn.com. And if you really enjoy our work, please consider contributing to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash historyrespawn. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.